Hello, my name's Emma. Welcome to the Zero Room. Where in time and space am I? Outside of space and time, menaced by white robots and a baffling array of literary figures, the Doctor, Jamie and Zoe find themselves in a world as strange as the imagination. How many beans make five? Where was Moses when the lights went out? And why did the chicken cross the road? All this and more will be answered in the Zero Room. Oh, well, that's easy. I'd be Sherlock Holmes. I, you know, the Good greatest choice. detective of them all. Um, and if you wanted me to pick a version of Sherlock Holmes, I'm going to go for the Jeremy Brett version. Good choice. Okay. Good choice. Robin doesn't agree, though. Robin, good afternoon. Who would you be? Definitely not Jeremy Brett. Basil Rathbone every day of the week and twice on a Saturday. Yeah, I don't know. If I was in the mind robber and I could conjure a literary figure out of thin air, maybe I'd want to conjure the Doctor. And... I would be Gandalf. Good choice. <laughs> Gandalf the grey, Gandalf the white, which one? Absolutely. Oh, Gandalf the white, absolutely Gandalf the white. Um, and Shadowfax, I'd love to have uh, Shadowfax as my trusty steed. So, let's start off thinking about the mind robber, talking about the mind robber. Just a brief synopsis for you here. So, the Doctor, Jamie and Zoe find themselves in a fantasy world, and they're encountering characters from literature, fairy tales, and, of course, some sinister robots. So, while the Doctor is manipulated as the world presents him with puzzles to complete and questions to answer, it becomes clear that there's a puppeteer who goes by the name of the Master. So, given all the behind-the-scenes problems with this story, do you think it was a triumph against the odds, Jamie? Yes, famously there were an awful lot of problems behind the scenes with this episode. By the time they were making Doctor Who at this point, it was a weekly exercise. They had to turn out one episode every week and there were no breaks. The story before this, The Dominators, um, had an episode fall down. It was supposed to be a six-part story and they could only stretch it into five episodes. So they literally had to fashion another episode and add it on to the mind robber out of nothing. Famously, they had no budget, no extra actors, and no extra sets. So Derek Sherwin, who was the script editor at the time, had to literally write a script with just Jamie, Zoe, and the Doctor. And all he had was the TARDIS. Mm -hmm. And they didn't even have a budget for the monsters. And the robots that you see in the very first episode are actually repurposed from a BBC sci-fi anthology series called Out of the Unknown. And they literally found them in the stock cupboard, gave them a paint job and chucked them on that episode. Wow. But I, st I still think it's actually a, a, a really fine bit of TV, actually that first episode of The Mine Robber, given that it was, you know, completely on the fly. I think they really did pull it off. Um, yes. And also, yes, Fraser Hines caught chickenpox while they were making it. 
Yes, so that explains the uh, different actor in the second, was it second episode, second to third episode? That's right, Hamish Wilson. Yep, yep. nicely done though, the Doctor getting uh, his face all mixed up in the first one of the first of his puzzles in this strange fantasy world. Robin, what about you? What do you think? Good story? Triumph against all odds? I think at the point where they're struggling against the odds, that's the point where the mind robber is at its best. So I loved the first episode. Um, and I loved it because it was so surreal. I loved mm. the white void. Um, I loved the TARDIS exploding. I loved what they were doing with the console at the end, the console revolving with Zoe kind of lying atop it. I thought, in terms of iconography, the first episode of The Mind Robbers gives us loads of great iconic visuals. And it strikes me that because they couldn't do anything that had any narrative significance, they were going for iconic visuals instead. And I really like the fun they have with rearranging um, Jamie's face and the kind of pretext for introducing this new Jamie character. I think where they are conquering problems on the fly, they're doing it brilliantly. The bits of the mind dropper I like less are the bits which were clearly scripted before the chaos happened. So I'm not really desperately keen on the story. Episodes 2, 3, 4 and 5, you know, they're okay. They've got some good moments. They don't really set me alight. And I think if we compare it to Web of Fear, and if we compare it going forward to the invasion, I can begin to see why Doctor Who was heading in the direction of earthbound stories as they entered the 1970s, because they mm. were really working, whereas mm. the kind of slightly more fantastical stories, based on my experience of the Mind Robber, were not quite at that level. So that was my thought, my overall thought on the Mind Robber. I loved it. I really loved it. But then I'm really into sort of um, that connection between um, literature and fairy tale and reality in inverted commas because obviously this is Doctor Who it really reminded me of John Connolly book called Book of Lost Things so in what way how did it remind you of that a fantasy world made of different literature characters and fairy tale characters but also very much a part of the central characters psyche as well but with a, a dark shadowy manipulative character behind it all that's what that that was the connection for me a boy he's a boy who comes from a real world and enters into this fantasy world so that was the sort of connection for me and i love that kind of story What did you make of the characters that they had chosen to put in there? Because obviously there's Gulliver, mm -hmm. fresh out of Lilliput, and there's this character called the Carcass, or Carcass, or whatever he's called. Mm. Who else is there? Oh, there's um, one of the Musketeers, isn't there? D'Artagnan. Yep, D'Artagnan. So what did you um, make of that as a kind Serrano. of ensemble of characters from literature? Very, very classic literature, a lot of them, weren't there? Apart from Rapunzel, a uh, um, little fairy tale. There was that lovely little clip from Little Women, when Jamie climbs in through Rapunzel's um, window, and um, I think it's, who is it who reads? I think it's the same woman who plays Rapunzel who actually reads that little extract as from Little Women, I think. Mm. Don't quote me. Yeah, I love that. And I, I yeah, but I, I suppose they would all be characters that people in 1970s um, Britain maybe would have read or would be familiar with, apart from the carcass who was supposed to be from year 2000, wasn't he? I was going to say they were also all out of copyright. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> that would explain it. There's yeah. the connection. <laughs> Indeed. Free to use the Pixabay of the fictional world, uh, if you will. 
I, like you, Emma, I thought it said an awful lot about what was current in the kind of literary imagination in the late 1960s. Mm. And obviously, I guess one of the ways in which this has not aged particularly well is, you know, I don't know how many young people are talking about Gulliver's Travels anymore. No. Um, I don't know how many of them are talking about the Three Musketeers anymore, blah, blah, blah. Or Blackbeard. Yeah. Or Serrano de Bergerac, indeed. No. Um, it'd be interesting to think about... If they were to redo something like this, which characters they would they would pick? You'd probably have a bit of Harry Potter there, maybe. <laughs> Possibly Frodo. Oh, definitely Frodo. <laughs> and Gandalf the White and Shadow Facts. We're back. Absolutely, now. there you go. There's oh, my connection. Take us to Lord of the Rings. Well, yeah, Russell T. Davis did genuinely look at doing a Harry Potter um, special in the time of the Tenth Doctor. Uh, it would have been one of the final specials. The idea was that uh, Tennant would have finished. He wiped the mind of Donna, sat in the TARDIS on his own, lots of sort of sombre sort of noise, and there would be a knock at the door, and it would be J.K. Rowling herself saying that he needed to uh, save the Magic Kingdom. And the plan was that, yes, he would actually sort of enter the world of Harry Potter. I am going to put Robin on the spot, actually, because I know that Robin has a fetish for fonts. So what did he think of the fonts in the Forest of Trees? Um, I'm going to confess myself unmoved. Um, technically, I have a, a, a love of typefaces, specifically sans serif typefaces. So the um, the forest was a serif typeface, and therefore it left me unmoved. <laughs> I do like, however, the Euro style that they use in Doctor Who during this era. I think it's brilliant. Well done. So modern, so 60s, absolutely spot on. Okay, so this manipulative character that is behind all of the puzzles and questions that the doctor has to find the answer to he's called the master now obviously this doesn't have any relation to the master character that we see through the rest of the doctor who series he doesn't appear for another two years but is there any element do you think of this character that might have influenced his namesake I'm thinking that he's basically he's playing games with his adversaries, which is, you know, the master of later series quite often is, is that kind of character. What do you two think? I don't think he was related to the, the master master. No. That we, that we know and stroke our goatee chins at mm. and cackle. I, I think this character was very much modelled on sort of the, the pulp writers of the 1930s mm. and 40s. Famously, there was a guy called uh, Walter B. Gibson who invented the shadow. Now it's interesting you say the shadow because I was, you know, I was talking about John Connolly's book earlier, the Book of Lost Things. Yeah. There's a, a shadow character in that as well. Anyway, sorry, carry on. Back in the 30s and 40s, you know, there was a real uh, sort of genre, pulp fiction, and these writers could write thousands of words a day. Walter B. Gibson once boasted he could write 10,000 words a day and he would write a novel every three weeks. I mean, there were several sort of could have been masters in the Troughton era. There's the Warlord as well, who comes up in the War Games, uh, which is another Time Lord, although they haven't actually admitted as yet that the Doctor is a Time Lord. And there's also the Meddling Monk as well, who's a character from the William Hartnell story. And I've forgotten the name. Robin, can you remember it? The Time Meddler, I think. He's also appears in the Dalek Master Plan, I think. You're right, he does. Played by Peter Butterworth of Carry On fame. He also reminded me a bit of The Great Intelligence, and I think in several of the episodes he kind yes. of sounds a lot like The Great mm. Intelligence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to suggest that as well. I don't know if that was deliberate on their part or mm. just, just it was just a default 
sinister voice setting. Mm. Robin, what do you think? My immediate thought was, oh, that's interesting. We've got a character called the Master, and mm. therefore I was immediately looking for continuities between this character and the character we meet in the Pertwee era. I mean, you're absolutely right. It is. It is interesting that they've got this name, the Master, and that it's kind of sinister and it's ominous and it clearly has legs but yeah but in this iteration um you know as jamie says i mean he's obviously very much a writer character there's no indication that he's anything other than human um on the basis that all of his cultural references appear to be human i think perhaps there are small echoes that you can pick up on with the later master in the sense that the later master does quote literature from time to time but yeah but i think that's probably just more that's what sinister people do isn't it sinister people Mm. they quote literature in arch ways at least in british science fiction (laughs) the klingons do it from time to time as well there's a klingon i remember who quotes shakespeare but yeah it's kind of like it's a trope isn't it It's, it's what bad guys do few occasions the Doctor meets other fictional characters and do you think this enriches or subverts the series? I think in the case of the mind robber it enriches you know the narrative uh, and and widens Doctor Who up. Not every crossover works. Um, There was a rather infamous 11th Doctor Star Trek comic series about eight nine years ago which was utter tosh frankly where they sort of (laughs) brought the 11th Doctor and the Star Trek crew together uh, to fight the Borg and to fight the Cybermen at the same time, which frankly did stretch things. It stretched credibility to breaking points in the series, which never really had that much credibility anyway. See, I love a crossover. That's why I really love Avengers. <laughs> <laughs> so what's good about a crossover, Emma? What, you know, sell it to me. There's something really exciting about being a fan of one series and, and then another one and then watching how those two groups would interact. But it really does have to be done well. And if it fails, that's incredibly disappointing. So bringing Guardians of the Galaxy into you know a story with the rest of the Avengers worked beautifully, in my opinion. But that was always going to happen because that's, that's Marvel's storyline. Plus, Marvel Comics have quite a long history of bringing people together. The, the Avengers was, a lot of the characters were already up and running back in the 60s uh, and then brought together for the comic book. And you had, you know, the Fantastic Four would meet the X-Men or Daredevil would meet Spider-Man. In fact, Spider-Man and Daredevil both fought the Kingpin. They had a sort of common, oh. which, which led very sort of neatly to sort of bringing them together. So, yeah, the Marvel Universe has been built on sort of crossovers for the best part of 50, yeah. 60 years. Returning to Doctor Who, if I may, um, yeah, I don't know, crossovers, crossovers. I mean, I think the thing about Doctor Who is it so borrows from pulp fiction and from classic literature, and, you know, it's, it's borrowing from it the whole time, but it's doing so in ways which kind of, there are kind of subtle acknowledgements. I'm thinking, you know, obviously of talents of Wang Chiang as being like the classic example. Sherlock Holmes is not mentioned at all during the story, but Sherlock Holmes is there on screen in every scene, and there are little, you know, the EB monograph on the handkerchief or whatever it is, you know, that's a reference to a particular Conan Doyle story. So I much prefer it when Doctor Who does it with a light touch. I can't see why would you want to introduce Gulliver into your story? other than that he was out of copyright. I don't see what that gets you. Did anyone else think that the Doctor was more confused and more emotional than usual? He seemed to spend a lot of time shouting, Jamie, Zoe, Jamie, Zoe, and just sort of, you know, wringing his hands and 
holding his head in his hands. This was a real sort of mind bender for him. I thought he was quite similar to the 11th Doctor, actually. I think you could have dropped Matt Smith in this episode. Yeah. But at some points, there's a sort of childlike glee that he's sort of mixing with all these characters and having lots mm. of fun. And then you can see the sort of real air of sort of panic as he's trying to sort of fix everything and deal with the situation in hand. Mm. It's a very sort of charming story, and I think he actually, you know, gives a very sort of charming performance. I, I know mm. that apparently the first episode and the problems they had with the first episode was one of the factors sort of behind him deciding to quit the following year because the workload was getting too much mm. you know despite it all he, he still always puts in sort of a cracking performance mm. which is a hallmark of a really great character actor we've compared those two doctors before haven't we yeah. um, very, some, lots of similarities between them in answer to your question I think yes the doctor is more at sea in this story and I guess that if we're taking the Doctor's character to be fairly constant and we assume that, you know, he understands physics and he understands time and he understands, you know, he's a scientist and he's a good lateral thinker, all of those are great advantages in a universe where the laws of physics are constant. But as soon, mm. as, you will, as, soon as you move into a kind of fictional setting where you are dealing with fictional logic rather than with kind of quote-unquote real logic, then all of the advantages that a Doctor would normally have um, cease to be advanced, which would leave him to be more at sea. There were moments where he was very changeable. So, for example, he's really concerned at one point that he's lost Zoe, and then he finds her, and then all of a sudden it's just all jokes, jokes, jokes. Oh, Zoe's stuck in this jar. Rather than trying to liberate her instantaneously, um, the Doctor, who had been very concerned, wants to have some fun with that situation and, and actually mock Zoe. So, yeah, so there were moments like that where I kind of felt that the character wasn't wholly convincing, but there we are. So, if there was to be a spin-off from this episode, what would you like to see? One of the aspects of this that was most surprising was just how much of a dead stop it came to at the end of the fifth episode. Mm. So you never get to find out what happens to the master. You never really get to find out what happens to the space that they're all inhabiting. Literally, it's just like they're out of there and the credits roll and then and I actually watched the next episode to see what happened next and again there's, there's kind of no real reference back to the master you never find out what happened to him so I'm interested to find out what happened to the master which historical era did he come from how did he get trapped in this virtual reality space in the first place I'd like to know more about him it's funny actually we never saw any more of the alternative Jamie but it was a shame that we never got another, another glimpse of him it would have been a great big finished spin-off <laughs> time we'll be talking about the invasion because robin can't get enough of the cybermen love those cybermen this has been the zero room and it's been a pleasure bye <laughs>